I'm reading from the second chapter of Luke. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days, as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. But supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, seeking him. Now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. When they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? But they did not understand the statement which he spoke to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. But his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. If you're acquainted at all with the scriptures, you know that we find in the Gospels quite a bit of information about the conception and the birth of our Lord Jesus. In fact, every year in the month of December, in that four-week period we call the season of Advent, those scriptures are often read among us and discussed by us. And if you're familiar with the scripture, you know that there's even a greater amount of information found in the Gospels about Jesus' life as an adult. This material comprises the bulk of the material that is found in the four Gospels. But the paragraph that I just read is unique, for it's the only account in the life of Christ of that time between his young childhood and his work as the Messiah of Israel. Here, probably using information gleaned from conversations with Mary, the inspired historian tells us of a watershed moment in the life of the young Savior. And from this account, we learn something about the religious devotions and the habits of that family created by God to house and mentor the Messiah. We learn something of Jesus' recognition even before he was a teenager of his very unique relationship with God the Father. And we discover something about one of the passions of the early years of his life. The occasion for this incident was the Jewish celebration of Passover. That was an annual celebration created by God and mandated by the law in which the Hebrews celebrated their release from Egyptian bondage. And as many of you will recall, that release required the sacrifice of a lamb. Its blood was smeared on the doorposts of the home in order to protect individuals and families from the angel of death who was coming, and its flesh was eaten by those in those homes. How significant it is that early in his life, Jesus should be associated with the Passover. For we remember reading that 
A few years later, he would die during the time of the celebration of Passover. And we remember the words of introduction of John the Baptist who said of him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how significant it is that we should be reminded of these things on this Sunday in which we gather to remember the Lord's torn flesh and his shed blood and obey his commandment, do this in remembrance of me. We're told that it was the habit of Joseph and Mary to make this annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. We find it strange that Luke would say that this was their habit because it was supposed to be the habit of all faithful Hebrews. This was required by the law. It was not suggested or recommended by God, but rather he said that you will come to the temple and you will observe this particular feast. But the fact that Luke tells us that this was the habit of this Jewish man and his Jewish wife leads us to believe that there were many who were negligent of the commandment, and this was not their habit at all. We would find that hard to believe if we didn't live in a time in which many choose to neglect the simplest and the plainest of the commandments of God, and if we ourselves didn't wrestle with disobedience in our personal lives from time to time. Commentators ask the question, is this the first time that Jesus was taken to Jerusalem after the events of his childhood? And there's no historical evidence that we can use to answer that question. As I say, this event is unique. It is the only mention of anything that happened to Jesus between his birth and very young childhood and the beginning of his public ministry. But I think there are things to consider that would lead us to a pretty certain answer. First of all, we know that Joseph and Mary knew something of the unique identity of their son. Before his conception, an angel appeared to Mary and told her that the son that she was going to have would be known as the son of the highest. And before his birth, an angel came to Joseph and told him that that which was conceived in Mary was of the Holy Spirit. All by itself, then, this would be enough for us to assume that this blessed couple would have been very faithful in their attendance at the services in their local synagogue and in doing all that the law required, and more than that, that they probably would have involved their son Jesus in their devotion. But more than that, we have the testimony of men writing in the Psalms of their hunger for God and their delight in that place where his people gathered to sing his praises. In Psalm 42, an ancient righteous man said, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. In Psalm 84, another man said, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And in Psalm 122, a man said, I was glad when they said unto me, let's go into the house of the Lord. You and I feel that desire, that deep restlessness on the morning of the Lord's day, whether we at home or whether we are far away from home. The spirit that has been placed in our hearts yearns to be in that place where God is honored, where Christ is trusted, and where his word is held high and believed and taught. 
and if such longings are common to the hearts and minds of sinners redeemed by the grace of God, how much more natural and compelling would they be to one like Jesus who was unstained by human sin? Jesus, the boy, would have asked, or perhaps he would have begged, to be taken with them when they went into the house of the Lord. Was this the first time that Jesus went with his parents to the temple? I believe that we have to assume that they had taken him to this sacred place many times. Each time, strangely impressed by his fascination with holy things and his unusual quietness in these sacred precincts. This particular visit is not recorded because it was the first time the Lord visited the temple, but rather because it was a very special time. There's a tendency for us to describe this event as a brief glimpse into the childhood of Jesus. But I believe that we are better informed if we describe this not as our last look at the childhood of Jesus, but at the first look of the manhood of Jesus. Luke tells us very deliberately that Jesus was 12 years old on this occasion. When a Jewish boy reached his 12th birthday, he was declared a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment. And at this point, he became a man in the Hebrew community, no longer numbered with the women and the young children sitting with them apart from the men in the synagogue and traveling with them apart from the men on their pilgrimages to and from Jerusalem. This change in Jesus' status in the community accounts for the ignorance of both Joseph and Mary regarding his whereabouts on their way home to Nazareth. It would have been an easy thing for Joseph to assume that Jesus would be returning with Mary, with whom he had made the trip, and it would be natural for Mary to assume because of the change in Jesus' stature that he was traveling with the men, and she would not have missed him. And it wasn't until they made camp their first night out that they found one another and found that Jesus was not with them. And now because of his elevation in status from boy to man in the Hebrew community, the Lord had opened to him the privilege and responsibility of interacting with the teachers of Israel in their mutual effort to better understand the commandment or the law of God. This seems strange to us as Americans living in the 21st century but religious leadership in the Old Testament, from Adam after the fall to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses until the time of the coming of Christ was placed in the hands of men. They were assigned the heavy responsibility of teaching the commandments and ways of God to others, and the Lord held them uniquely accountable for the spiritual state of their families, of their tribes, and of their nation. And that this ordering of things was of God is endorsed by the inspired writings of the apostles. Peter instructed Christian wives to be submissive to their husbands. And Paul wrote, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. We live in an age of egalitarianism. We live at a time in which many of the values of our culture are not derived from anything that God has said, but rather are derived from something that man wants. 
And these are hard words for us to hear and hard words for us to accept in this particular age, but this is the word of the Lord. In a culture in which there is a common desire and effort to conform to what God has said, a culture in which it is understood that God has placed the weight of responsibility for the righteousness of families or congregations on the shoulders of men, it's easy to imagine that if a woman were to publicly challenge her husband or to embarrass an elder, that the position of that man in the family or in the congregation would be compromised. The 31st Psalm is about a marvelous woman. If I were a Christian woman, I would have memorized the 31st Psalm. It's about a woman with incredible abilities and strengths, a woman who is probably more energetic and smarter than her husband. And yet it's a proverb about a woman who has been the, given the grace not to belittle and not to challenge her husband, who is an elder in their village while she is not. And both of them are blessed because of her righteousness and her desire to please God. Mary was such a godly lady. More than once, the historian tells us that Mary kept all of these things in her heart. But on this occasion, Jesus the boy becomes Jesus the man. And for the first time in his hungry young life, he has the freedom to interact with the finest teachers of Israel. And his delight in that exercise is plain for all to see in what Luke records for us. And I remind you at this time, Jesus was just 12 years old. In our culture, in our families, in our church, we would not call him a man. He would still be a boy to us. And yet this boy had a deep fascination for the things of God, and we have to wonder why. Where did that fascination come from? Too easily we answer, well, Jesus is God. Of course he's interested in holy things. And then go no further in our search for an answer. Yes, Jesus is God. This is one of the fundamental tenets of our religion. No one has a right to call himself a Christian who denies the deity of Jesus Christ. But our understanding that Jesus is divine also makes it easy for us to miss the intended value of, the, of his life for us. We say, of course he was able to fast for a long period of time in order to concentrate on the word of God because he's God. We say, of course, he was able to drive himself to exhaustion in the service of others because he's God. We say, of course, he was able to pray for mercy for those who abused and tormented him because he is God. And what we do with such statements as these is shield ourselves from the impact the example of his life is intended by God to have on us. The book of Hebrews tells us that the Son of God learned obedience by the things which he suffered and that he was in all points tested as we are. And Peter wrote that Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. When we see Jesus only as divine, the example of his life makes very little impact upon us. 
But when we remember that he was also man, he also lived in the flesh, then we begin to realize the things he experienced have meaning for us. Our question is, why was Jesus so interested in the things of God? And while a part of the answer is to be found in his nature as God in the flesh, there's also his human nature to consider. How did it come to pass that the emptiness of Jesus' mind and heart came to be filled with the knowledge and the yearning for the knowledge of the word of God? And the answer has to be the godly influence of Joseph and Mary. The Bible says to children, remember your creator in the days of your youth. Like the questions and answers of a catechism, the 119th Psalm asks and says, how shall a young person cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Joseph and Mary were a Hebrew man and woman who accepted the responsibility of Proverbs 22 that says to all parents who would be godly, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. At the age of 12, the boy who had been trained in their home amazed the teachers of Israel with his interest and his understanding. May the parents of young people in this church and the elders of this church and the members of this church embrace our responsibility for those young children and carry it out with faithfulness. May we be found in frequent prayer for those parents that wisdom and perseverance might be their gifts. May we be found often encouraging our Sunday school teachers and those engaged in youth ministries that righteousness for themselves and righteousness for others might be their goal. And may it be that an entire generation of children grows up in this church so lovingly trained in the things of God that others are astonished by their knowledge and by their joy in that knowledge. Jesus and his parents become separated, we read. Joseph and Mary discovered this when their caravan stopped to make camp on their first way out of Jerusalem on their way home to Galilee. You and I tend, and it's natural for us to do this, to read the accounts in the Bible, reacting to them as we might react if they were happening to us. In 21st century America, parents panic if their children are out of their sight for more than a few seconds whether that be in a crowded mall or in our, their own neighborhoods. The dominant words of moral discussion in our age are liberty and any others beginning with the prefix multi. As Christians, we wish that those dominant words were right and wrong and self-control. But since the great moral revolution of the 1960s, such language and concepts are regarded as hopelessly passe and stultifying. We've removed the restraints from the depravity of human nature with the result that the order in our culture and marriage and our children are all at risk. And therefore we read this piece of ancient history about parents who became separated from their son. And we imagine that they were on the verge of panic as we would be. 
But you know, it was not only so, always so in America. Not long ago, I read John Glenn's autobiography. John Glenn, the test pilot, the astronaut, United States Senator from the state of Ohio. And I was surprised by a story that he tells in his story. The story comes from one summer in his youth when he and a group of boy friends made a camp on vacant land on the banks of a river just outside of town. They pitched tents there and they spent many nights sleeping under the stars. They adopted the oath and followed the moral code of the Boy Scouts, although none of them were actually scouts. Unsupervised, they cooked their meals over open fires. They swam in the river and they carried on their various boys' activities. For most of that summer, that camp was home for those boys at a time when none of them was yet of high school age. Their parents knew where they were. Their parents trusted their sons and trusted their neighbors, and there was no panic. And that summer became one of the formative experiences in the life of this man who would come to figure so prominently and so effectively in recent American history. That is a scene that we would not dare try to emulate in any community in America today because of the degradation of public morality. But this seems to be the spirit of separation between Jesus and his parents. However one interprets the days that are mentioned by Luke, we sense in them very little panic or desperation. Joseph and Mary seem to have assumed that wherever Jesus was, he was safe. There was a home in the area where he spent time as a boy. Perhaps he was there. Perhaps he was staying with someone who adopted him momentarily. And their separation from him was as much a nuisance as it was a cause for alarm. When they found him, Jesus was in or near the temple, sitting among the teachers of Israel and probably surrounded by a large and interested crowd of onlookers. For this was now the third day that Jesus was there, and news of this precocious young man had doubtlessly spread among the religious, and they came to watch and to hear for themselves. It seems that teaching in this time involved interaction between teacher and student. There may have been a discourse on a particular passage of the law that was followed by discussion, discussion prompted by questions from the teacher, discussion prompted by questions from the students. It is not likely that Jesus was teaching the teachers of Israel anything that they did not already know. Their amazement, rather, was with his eagerness to learn and his ability to see the implication of particular passages and the connections of passages from the scriptures. Because of his focused attention, because of the crowd that had probably gathered, it probably took Joseph and Mary a while to get the attention of their son. But when they did catch his eye, and they signaled him that it was time to go, he stood up and followed them out immediately. When Luke tells us in verse 51 that Jesus was subject to them, he's not describing something new in their relationship. We have no reason to believe that Jesus was ever, including on this occasion, disobedient to his parents. If they had told him to be in a certain place at a certain time, 
he would have been there. It seems that what happened is that they simply assumed that he would know when they were leaving and where they would be and he would be there. And in this case, their assumption proved to be faulty. But Jesus was not defiant. Jesus was not disobedient. He understood the Old Testament commandment, honor your father, honor your mother, and took it very seriously and was a model son. As the three of them were leaving the temple, there were probably some who were surprised to see the simple dress of the poor couple that Jesus was with. They might easily have assumed that the father of such a wise student of the word of God would have been clad in the fine robes and have the smooth hands of a rabbi or a priest or perhaps a Pharisee and not be marked by the nondescript clothing and the rough hands of a carpenter. And as they were leaving, in part concerned for her son, in part frustrated by the delay in their going home, in part embarrassed by the attention that they had gained, Mary was overheard saying to her man-child, why have you done this to us? On this Communion Sunday, I'd like to call your attention to Jesus' answer. He said, either, did you not know I must be in my Father's house? Or, did you not know I must be about my Father's business? Translators and commentators are divided as to which of these is the best translation of the Greek New Testament. But it seems to me that a very strong case can be made for business instead of house. The word house does not appear at this point in the Greek New Testament. And this is interesting all by itself because that word appears more than 50 times in the Gospel of Luke and more than half of those it is found on the lips of Jesus himself. But it is not found here and it would have made the whole matter so plain if it were. In fact, in Luke 6, 4, Christ refers to the place of Hebrew worship as the house of God, and it would seem an easy thing for him to use that same language here if that, in fact, is its meaning. The Greek word that is subject to such a variety of understanding is the word tous. Tous is the plural of ha in the Greek. Ha is the masculine definite article, which is translated in English as the, and the plural of the definite article is the things. And thus Jesus said, I must be about my father's things. I must be about my father's affairs. I must be about my father's business. This seems to me to be the most reasonable translation of the Greek. Did you not know, Jesus asked with obvious surprise, that I must be about my father's business? At the age of 12, These words indicate to us that Jesus already understood his unique relationship with God the Father, and he knew that his life had to fit in with the purposes of God. There came a time when making reference to his father's business, Jesus said, it is finished. That happened not after he had taught a large crowd things concerning the kingdom of heaven and had impressed them with his authority, not after he had healed the sick or restored the crippled. 
It came not after that moment when at last Peter recognized him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, or that astonishing moment in ancient history when Jesus emptied Lazarus' grave. It came after he said that he had come to give his life a ransom for many. It came after he told his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed. It came after he lamented in prayer, now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. It came after the crowd demanded, crucify him, crucify him. It came after the nails had been driven, after the mocking of his enemies and the hasty departure of his friends. And after the sky over his head turned black with the wrath of God. It came as the last of his energy and vitality were fading, as the scene before him blurred with pending death. Then, and only then, was his father's business complete. And Jesus cried out, it is finished. The business that Jesus came to accomplish has nothing directly to do with injustice or illiteracy or disease or poverty and everything to do with the fact that we are sinners owing to God a debt too great to pay if we were inclined to try. Jesus came specifically for the purpose of going to the cross where he paid the debt of all who would repent of their sin and embrace him by faith. And as the prophet Isaiah declared, it is by his stripes that we are healed. If you are here this morning as a Christian, you know that after the cross, Christ rose gloriously from the grave, that he returned to the heavens from whence he had come and sits today at the right hand of God, from which he will return to the earth to claim his own and receive us forever unto himself. But today, our focus is on none of these things, but rather as we approach this table on which we find symbols of his torn flesh and his shed blood, we concentrate our minds and hearts on the place that his death is intended to play in our lives. Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. Jesus said, it is finished. Let us pray. Our Father, we are awed by the thoughts of this Jesus who became flesh, fully knowing all that lay before him, voluntarily laying aside his glory and his power and going to the cross, experiencing the death and the judgment that we deserve in order that by his stripes we might be healed, that we might be forgiven and bathed with your mercy, adopted as your children, and given the promise of everlasting life. Such things as these are too wonderful for us. They are high, we cannot attain them. We believe them, we love them, because you have declared them to be true. And for all of that, we give you our praise.